Nehemiah chapter 10 tonight. Look at all those names in the first 27 verses. Isn't this going to be fun? Let's pray together. Lord, just browsing over this chapter and seeing so many names that we have not thought about, maybe not even read through even once or tried to pronounce, yet you know them by name as you know us by name. And as they are written in this book, how thrilled we are that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It shows that you are a God who cares about people, about individuals, not just masses, not just great crowds or throngs of people, but that intimacy, that love that you want with each one of us. So we gather here tonight, Lord, as your family, so grateful that you do know us and in knowing us that you still love us with an everlasting love. We're accepted And so we feel at ease in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the Greek writer Aesop who was credited with the statement, united we stand, divided we fall. But it was the Lord Jesus who said it right. He said, every city or house divided against itself cannot stand. We have in chapter 9 and chapter 10, actually begins back in chapter 8, an unprecedented unity in the people of Jerusalem, in the population of Judea, an unprecedented unity around spiritual things. It's a very different crowd in Jerusalem in these chapters than the Jerusalem that Nehemiah found when he came to Jerusalem. For you see, he heard the report that the people in Jerusalem were forlorn because the city and the gates were fallen down and burned with fire. So when he comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't find a lot of fervor, a lot of excitement. He finds despondent, discouraged, disjointed group of people. However, a lot of changes have taken place. Not only has the city wall been built, But there is in this chapter a tremendous togetherness, unity, excitement over God, excitement over spiritual things, and a real energy mixed with a humility in serving God. Sounds like a church we'd all like to join, right? And you can see the difference if you were to compare, for instance, back in chapter 5, verse 1. Look at it with me. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. The next several verses describe reasons for the outcry. They were at an all-time low, so much so that verse 6 says, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. But then we get over to chapter 8 and we see things changing and a unity developing And described in chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Same chapter, the 13th verse. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses... Of all the people with the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. In chapter 9, verse 1, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth, with dust on their heads. And finally, the last verse of that chapter, verse 38, which introduces us to this chapter, and because of all of this, we made it, we made a sure covenant and write it and our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. A solemn covenant was made, public covenant was made in this chapter. And now it's spelled out in chapter 10. But before it is, 
All 84 names are given of those who made the public oath and sealed it in making this legal and solemn proclamation. Now, those who place their seal on the document. Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluch, Harim, Merimot, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, and I won't go on. <laughs> A lot of dudes, priests, Levites, nobles, and leaders, all put their names and hand to the covenant and make a solemn oath before the Lord. And so they're named. And then the covenant that was sealed is mentioned in verse 28, which goes all the way down to verse uh, 39. So we have about 11 verses. 84 names, 84 nobles, 84 leaders, plus a host of others who did not make a public signing of the document. They didn't sign the bottom line because they couldn't apply their signature to this legal document. They made it a real legal covenant, either because of their age or because they didn't have passed the nobility test, but they're behind it. There's an unprecedented unity in this chapter. Alexander White, who's famous for writing about Bible characters, said, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. I like that because it is true. It's not a light switch that you turn on and suddenly you become instantly mature and you've got it all wired and you've gotten victory over everything. Rather, it's a series of realizations and commitments. It's a series of new beginnings. And perhaps tonight will be one of those installments for us. It could be that the Lord impresses something on our hearts. Something is missing. Something is needed. A new commitment must be made. The Lord's been dealing with us. And perhaps tonight, unbeknownst to any of us, in the silence of your own heart, another step or new beginning is going to be made in that commitment toward a victorious Christian life. What's great about this chapter is that although individuals are mentioned, they're only mentioned to show us that there is a unity within the community. The emphasis is not on the individual here. The emphasis is on the community. They're together. They're not arguing. They're not mad at each other like chapter 5. There's a seamless garment. They're gathered together with one heart, with one mind. There is unity in the community. I heard about a visitor to a mental institution. And what struck the visitor is that he noticed one man guarding a hundred, what he called inmates in the mental institution. One watching a hundred. The visitor said to his friend, doesn't this worry you? Aren't you afraid that one day these inmates are going to all get their heads together? And turn against you and escape. And the friend who was watching them smiled and said, look, the reason they're here is because of their inability to get their heads together and to work cooperatively together. It's a very good lesson in that to claim to preach the gospel, to be God's kids without unity is insanity. It's nuts. The whole concept here that is so beautiful is not only have the walls been built, not only has an infrastructure come into play, not only is there a great list of authority figures like the governor, Nehemiah, like the priest, scribe, Ezra, and others, but that they're on the same page starting from chapter 8 all the way now into chapter 10. They're cooperating beautifully together. And so it is when, whenever a, a Christian organization, the church, the body of Christ is built, it's built cooperatively, not struggling against each other to get our way, but trying to find what God's way and will is. 
It's like the two guys that were riding a tandem bicycle up a steep hill. And at the end of it, the guy in front was just huffing and puffing. And he said, that was a hard hill to get up. The guy in the back said, yep. And if I wouldn't have had the brakes on, we'd have rolled backwards. (laughs) Well, that's true. But if you'd have kept the brakes off, you'd gotten up a lot quicker. It takes cooperation. So we're going to look at this unity tonight. We're going to look at it in four parts. What what marks this unity is that, first of all, it was a unity that was based scripturally. It was a unity that was based scripturally. They took their cues from the scripture. Beginning in verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, these were the temple workers. And I'll just throw that in in case you were to ask, who are they? Remember the Gibeonites who lied to Joshua and they were given the assignment that they would be workers in the future. They would be sort of like their in-country slaves. They became the Nethanim who originally served the children of Israel when the temple was built. And they were the woodcutters. But the captivity is over. They're back in the land. And so they probably gave different people that title, the Nethanim, the temple workers. And those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and everyone who had knowledge and understanding. They joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, and his ordinances and his statutes. This group was affected dramatically by what they had heard over in chapter 8. For in chapter 8, they were standing in front of the water gate when Ezra the scribe from morning until midday read from the law of God. They had not heard that before. They were affected by what they heard. They were convicted inwardly. And what it was, was a simple reading with an exposition of the scripture given after the reading. Or as it says in the Bible, he read from the text and he gave the sense. He explained the meaning of the Bible. Beginning in Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. There's power when people unify over God's truth, his revelation. Why? Because, and it's pointed out here. It's demonstrated here. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and of the intents of the heart. It's Hebrews 4. It's poignantly demonstrated in chapters 8, 9, and 10. The word of God made the difference. Now, it could be, judging from the kind of covenant that they made and their reaction to what they heard, that they were moved when Ezra the scribe came to a very important part of the reading of the law. I'm going to read to you, and you can turn to it if you want to turn there quickly, to Deuteronomy chapter 29, just a couple verses. And listen to what it says. This is now Moses speaking to the children of Israel. It's the speeches summing up the law of God. And it could be when they heard this, they decided, we're going to do that. Deuteronomy 29 in verse 10 All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders, your tribes, and your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood, that would be the Nethanim, to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God. And into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It could be they heard that and said, we're going to do that. Let's do that. We want to stand and make a covenant. We'll get all the elders, Levites, priests, Nethanim, woodcutters, water carriers, young and old, anyone who can understand, men and women, and we're going to make a covenant so that we can be God's people. Let's do that. 
This is the right kind of unity. It's unity that is based scripturally. See, there's a lot of reasons why people can gather together in an assembly. It could be our common interest in the special music that night. Oh, did you hear? So-and-so is playing over at that place. And so then it's our interest in the music or the musician playing the music that draws us to the event. Nothing wrong with that. God has given gifted people to the church, and it's wonderful to go and hear that. Or it could be that we're gathered in an assembly by a special interest in an activity we have. Well, this is the motorcycle ministry, or this is the knitting ministry, or this is the music ministry, whatever it might be. But paramount of a number one priority ought to be the unity based on the exposition and the application of Scripture. You see, here we are tonight. Why are we here? For the same reason. We're being nourished by the same promises of God. We're enjoying the unity of the same Holy Spirit, the same Savior that washed your sins, washed my sins. There's tremendous unity because, you see... It's all about Jesus. We know that. That's what the church is centered on. And so since the church is centered on Jesus Christ and his revelation, it only makes sense that our gathering together, our fellowship would be based upon Jesus Christ and his revelation. And though they didn't have Jesus in the Old Testament like we have, same principle. They were unified over the word of God. I remember uh, one meeting I was invited to. I just moved from Southern California to Albuquerque. Didn't know anybody. I was young. I was working out at the YMCA. A man found out I was a believer. He invited me over to his house. He knew I was newly married, new in town, didn't know anybody. I was working at the local hospital in radiology. I had these wild ambitions of starting a Bible study there and starting a church. So he thought... This will be good for you. I'm going to introduce you to our Christian friends. We gather together every now and then, a group of us believers. So I'm thinking, great, it's going to be a Bible study. I'll be able to receive nourishment. Maybe I can share something the Lord laid on my heart. So I was so excited. We gathered together that night and all these people came and I couldn't wait for the Bible study to begin. And then the host sat down and looked at everybody and said, We'd like to tell you about something that changed our lives. I'm going, great. He's going to share the gospel. He's going to bring out the Bible. And then he said, Amway changed our lives. And so I rang his neck. No, I didn't. But it's like I felt so, well, betrayed. It's like, just be honest with us. Tell us we're having an Amway meeting rather than we have brothers and sisters we'd like you to get to know. And it's going to be so encouraging. It wasn't all that encouraging for me. (laughs) And no, I didn't buy. I'm sorry if you're an Amway distributor, but I didn't buy that night. Didn't work on me. They joined with their brethren, their nobles, the 29th verse, and entered into a curse And a note, that's a solemn covenant that they're making. To walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. Let me just say before we move on to the next point of this unity. um, There's a sentiment. I don't think you find it much in this body, but you find it around and it's the idea that the truth, the absolute truth, the uncompromised biblical truth, the truth of the doctrines of the Bible aren't that important. Oh, it goes something like this. Yeah, the Bible's good and it is important, but We're not really into doctrines because doctrines can divide people and doctrines can be so hurtful to other people. So we just feel that we should love one another and accept everyone's ideas and just we'll we'll get together. We'll have a nice big group hug. But let's not get hung up on truth. Let's not get hung up on doctrines. 
You know, if Elijah the prophet would have believed that, he never would have confronted the prophets of Baal. He would have said, let's have some kind of ethnic reconciliation between you and your people over in Babylon and we, the Jewish people, our gods and your gods. If Paul the Apostle would have believed that, he never would have stood up against the Judaizers, the legalists in Jerusalem, who said you have to keep Jewish laws in order to be saved. Oh, no, he never would have made those hard divisions of legalism versus grace. And if Jesus Christ would have believed that, do you think he would have turned to the Pharisees and said words like, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs? I don't think so. He would have said, no, let's have a meeting together and we'll just have one big group hug. Rather, his idea of unity was never divorced from the truth. Never. That's why it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves constantly or steadfastly to, number one, the apostles' doctrine, then fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. That's why when John writes 3 John Verse 1, he says, the elder to my beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. His love was never divorced from the truth. You see, otherwise, your love could only be called sloppy agape. Sloppy agape is love divorced from truth. The idea of unity apart from truth. You can't do that. Their unity was based scripturally. Love that train. (laughs) Let's go on in our text in chapter 10. Second thing to notice is that this was unity with accountability. Now, I mentioned that there's 84 names, along with a host of others who are unnamed, just categorized. 84 names that are written out that are stated. And uh, verse 28 The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the land, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and everyone who had knowledge and understanding. This was done as a public proclamation. It was done in the presence of other people, and as I said, a solemn, legal kind of a vow. Here's why, I believe. You see... They were there when Ezra started reading the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they started realizing, you know what? We have a problem. We have, as a people, a propensity to go astray. Like Isaiah would write years later, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have this propensity. Over and over again, the law predicted that we're going to go astray and be taken captive. You know what? We just got back from captivity. So... If we're going to nip this in the bud, if we're going to take this seriously, we're going to make a contract, a covenant that makes us accountable to one another. It's going to be public. Names are going to be written. It will be a verbal proclamation, not just something as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Just say this in your heart. No, 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 none of that. It's going to be a public verbal proclamation because they knew their own propensity. You see, public commitments bring a different level of accountability. That's the purpose of weddings. It's the purpose of witnesses at weddings. Uh, you, you, by law, have to have somebody witnessing it and signing it on the license as a witness. That's for the reason of accountability. Uh, a few weeks ago, you remember we had a surprise wedding at the end of our service. It wasn't a surprise to the couple. They knew they were going to get married. It was a surprise in that we did it here publicly at the end of the service. Our idea was to take them back to the prayer room, the fireside room, and just have a unique ceremony with a few friends. But we thought, hey, the church is gathered. You know, to get this many guests by invitation would cost a lot of money, and we've already got them. Let's just enjoy it. Good for economy. And then vows are said publicly one to another. We don't whisper them. They say, I will take you as my God-given wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse till death, I mean, till death (laughs) do us part. And everybody hears that. And the reason they're done publicly is because we reach a higher level of accountability. Hey, I was there when you said that vow. 
to that woman. I was there and I heard that vow to your husband. Why is it that now this is the position that you're taking or the direction that you're going? So that's a wonderful thing at that high level of accountability. Um, I'm going to say something to those who might say, well, I love Jesus, but I'm a lone ranger kind of a Christian. Any form of spirituality that doesn't include accountability to another believer is isolation. And the Bible warns against that and eventually will lead you into ruin. There's a lot of scriptures about the need to hold yourself accountable with another person. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Psalm 141, verse 5, David would agree with that. For David said to rebuke and to chasten a wise man is like ointment to the soul. And he said, I will receive it gladly. And there's different levels of accountability. I remember when I was starting out in the ministry in New Mexico, I had an elderly gentleman in our church who would get together with me every few months, buy me lunch, and all alone ask me some tough questions. Very tough questions. He wanted me to answer them right then and there. And it was good. At first I thought, man, this guy's getting rough. But I realized the wisdom of having some older, wiser believer ask me the tough questions to keep me grounded and to hold me accountable. And he was so good, I thought, you've got to be on my board of directors. I need this all the time. Then I have a friend who decided that being too close to the Internet and that kind of accessibility isn't wise alone. So he makes sure that every month I get an automatically sent email with all of the websites he's visited in that last month for the sake of accountability. It's wonderful. Any spirituality that doesn't include accountability can tend toward isolation. Now, um, verse 30 is the third one now. That we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That if the peoples of the land being bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, that we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, that we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exaction of every debt. Here's the third aspect of their unity. This unity affected the family. It affected the family. It affected how they would give away their sons and daughters in marriage. And there seems to be two issues, two concerns here. We'll, we'll talk about them as we move through it. Marriage and the keeping of the Sabbath. When it came to marriage, for some reason, they had gotten lax over the years, allowing their daughters to be married to people who were the locals in the land. After all, they'd been 70 years in Babylon. They got back from there. There may not have been uh, the right guy to marry. There may have been the right gal to marry. You know, when you're in a foreign culture, you can say, and I've heard it in churches, I just don't know any neat Christian men. I just don't know any great Christian gals. And so the tendency to missionary date outside the walls of the church, to date unbelievers, they had that issue. And there could be a number of reasons for it. Number one, they simply had an affection toward somebody who wasn't Jewish, a Babylonian, a Samaritan. It could be they had, number two, a fascination with that which is prohibited. You know, hey, I know this isn't right, but I, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of fascinated. I'm, I'm tantalized by that. It's a temptation to explore that which is forbidden. What would it be like to get involved with an Assyrian? It could be also for the reasons of social status. After all, the Jews were slaves. To be married to somebody who was of another culture, especially in royalty, would be quite something. Or for the sake of doing business. Did you know that most of Solomon's marriages were marriages out of convenience because of business relationships that he had with kings of other countries? Now, we know what happened to Solomon. 
He did it for the wrong reason, for business, for relationships with kings. Eventually, those women stole Solomon's heart away from the Lord. So for whatever reason, there had been this practice of men and women who were Jews marrying pagans outside the covenant of God. And they had been loose about that. They said, no more. We're not going to do that. We're going to make sure that our sons and daughters uh, aren't given to the people of this land. So it was a real concern. And they wanted to make sure that they didn't marry outside the faith. And here's why. When somebody of faith marries somebody outside the faith, there is a tendency for the person of faith to lose their faith. Even though they say, not me. This is going to be God's opportunity to get that person saved. As if God needs you to do it. Oh, God's depending on you. If you don't reach out and marry that person, they're lost. No, no, don't think that way. God's a big God. He has a lot of ways. Ask Jonah <laughs> how to get somebody's attention. He knows. But this idea of missionary dating. Oh, but we love each other and we think it's going to turn out all right. You know, I never wanted to get married just so that it would turn out all right. I wanted to make sure that when I got married, it was to fit in line with God's best blessing and God's greatest glory and will for my life. And so they decided, hey, we're people of God. We're not going to entertain this business anymore at all. Second Corinthians 6.14, a familiar text says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? When people get married, the spouses are separated supposedly, for the rest of their lives to that other person. That's the kind of covenant. They're, they're making a statement that I am separated to you forever. Um, and it's a question that I ask at a wedding. Will you live unto her only as long as you both shall live? Will you live, into, live unto him as long as you both shall live? I will. Okay, listen to what you're saying. I will. You're making a decision, a rational decision, to separate from everything else and cleave unto this person, everyone else, and give your love only to this person. So it's important that you agree, because how can two walk together except they be agreed? How could a, a Jewish person living in Jerusalem at that time be married to a pagan and not be defiled ceremonially? How could a Jewish person be married to a pagan and keep the feasts in Jerusalem? It'd be very difficult to do that. And they understood it now after reading the Bible. They got back to the Bible. They got back to holiness in their family. They wanted to keep that as a covenant before the Lord. Then notice the Sabbath. If the people of the land, verse 31, bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and that we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exaction of every debt. Now, the Gentiles didn't regard the Sabbath. Okay, it's Saturday. And let's say you're a Gentile. You're not Jewish. It's a Saturday. It's another opportunity to make money. You don't care about the Sabbath. And the Jews had gotten relaxed about that special holy day that marked them apart from everybody else, sort of like in our country, Sunday was a day that stores were closed. And then people realized, hey, that's that's yesterday's world in our world today. Sunday is a great day for business. So the shift was made from family and from church and from those kinds of things to another day to make more shekels. And so business as usual, but not for these Jews. They are getting back to honoring that day before the Lord, Saturday, the Sabbath for the Jews. Now, something interesting. They decided we're going to keep the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year meant this. Every seventh year, 
you don't work in the fields at all. You just let whatever happens to grow, grow of itself, and you pick whatever grows. Whatever you have sown over the last six years, the seventh year, you just go out and glean it, but you don't really work to sow. You just, you just go out and get what you want when you get it, when you want it. To do that meant that you have to live by faith for two years. Because there's the year that you let the ground lay fallow, and then there's the next year where you're working the land to prepare it for the next six. You did that for seven cycles of seven, 49 years. The 50th year was called the Jubilee year. The Jubilee year, you'd also let the ground lay fallow, and you'd get whatever grows on its own, which means you have to trust the Lord for three years. They're in economic struggle and crisis. Heavily taxed by Artaxerxes Longimanus, all the way back from King Cyrus of Persia. It's tough. They don't have infrastructure. They don't have free trade. They don't have a lot of the amenities that a lot of cultures have. It's a struggle, as we see in chapter 5. We can't afford this. And so for them to decide, we're going to keep the Sabbath day, we're going to keep the Sabbath year, was a great statement of faith on their part. And that really encourages me. And I think that they're coming to this covenant because they're looking back and remembering the captivity. Now, listen carefully. One of the reasons they suffered for 70 years in captivity is because they didn't keep the Sabbath year. God says in 2 Chronicles 36, you haven't obeyed me in regard to the Sabbath. You haven't let the land have its rest. And because you haven't done it for 490 years, Historically, as a nation, you owe me 70 years for the land to lay fallow and rest. I'm going to take it out by taking you out of the land, and then I'll bring you back. So they thought, we learned our lesson. We're not going to do that again. We're going to live by faith. We don't want the captivity. We're going to keep the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. Now, I like to bring this up whenever I meet a Sabbatarian who claims to be a Bible-believing Christian, but we're different and better than the rest of you because we keep the Sabbath day. We don't worship on Sunday, the Mark of the Beast day, as they'll tell you, some of them. We keep the Sabbath, Saturday. And I ask them, are you sure you are willing to tell me here and now that you keep the Sabbath? Oh, yes. It's a law that God gave, and it's a law that we keep. Are you sure that you're willing to tell me here and now that you keep the Sabbath? Yeah, why do you ask? Because I don't believe you. If you tell me you keep the Sabbath, that means the seventh year you don't go to work. You're willing for an entire year to just live off of whatever you've made. Do you do that? Well, no. Then you don't keep the Sabbath. Well, that's not part of the law. And then I showed them back in the Old Testament. It is part of the law. And then I do that to get them off kilter on purpose. For enough time to show them what Paul said in the New Testament, that one man esteems one day over all the days of the week. Another man esteems another day. Another one says, all of the days are alike. Let each be persuaded in his own mind. And I said, you're persuaded in your mind that Sabbath, Saturday is the day to keep. I'm persuaded that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday are all days to worship God. So I'm persuaded that in my mind. You're persuaded on Saturday? Great. You can worship God on Saturday. I'll worship God the whole week. Whatever you're into. But be persuaded in your own mind. Don't come here to try to persuade us to be of your mind. So the unity should be based on Scripture, based on accountability, And based according to the word of God, that includes the family, as we see here. Let's go on now to verse uh, 32, and we'll finish out the chapter. And here's the fourth mark of unity. It was a unity that touched them financially. I've saved the best for last. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now, notice the term house of God or house of our God. It'll be mentioned nine times in our text. For the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, 
and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to the father's houses, the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and first fruits of all the fruit of all the trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil, to the priests, to the storerooms, to the house of our God, and to bring the tithe, excuse me, the tithes, plural, of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priests, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. The Levites shall receive tithes. The Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Every Israelite, 20 years old and up, went under the census, that is, they were counted as part of Israel, and then from them was exacted a half shekel temple tax to keep all of the temple sacrifices and ordinances going. They discovered in the reading of the law, we've neglected the word of God. We have neglected this idea of the Sabbath keeping. We have neglected the standards of worshiping God with our families and imposing this no marriage ordinances uh, with pagans. And we have neglected the tithes for the house of the Lord. Now, we're in the New Testament. We know that the, the Lord doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And we know that we, God's people, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the way we treat our finances spiritually in regards to what we give to God's work upon the earth, especially the local church, is a barometer of spirituality. It's not the telltale sign, but it is a barometer. It is a reading. And the Bible has a lot to say about giving. The Bible has a lot to say about money. The Gospel of Luke especially. Jesus says a lot about how we handle finances, giving, investing, etc. Now granted, the Bible doesn't say as much as a lot of preachers say about giving, but the Bible does speak about the topic. And here they realized that, and they decided that we're going to give to God what we ought to give and keep up the house of the Lord. Um. The first fruits mentioned in verse 35. Agriculturally, fruits and vegetables. And when it came to then the firstborn of men or of the flocks, whether you have a firstborn child at home or you are, uh, animals have a firstborn animal, that firstborn was always dedicated to the Lord to remember that the firstborn of the children of Israel were kept and guarded by God during the plagues of Egypt and the death of the firstborn of Egypt, the blood put on the lintels and doorposts and the death angel passed them over. So the whole idea of dedicating the firstborn was to remember God preserved us as a nation. We've neglected that. Now let's keep that. Now, verse 38 and all the way down to verse 39. Here's how it worked. Tithes from the tribes of Israel were given to the Levites. The Levites took a tenth of that and gave it to the priests. And then there were three tithes altogether on different times during the year. And one of them was specifically for the poor of the land. So that the priests, the Levites, the temple or the tabernacle, and the poor of the land could all be taken care of by the Lord. I look at this and I see this as a great example of Matthew 6:33 Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you because see these people did have it tough financially 
it was hard to live. You know, we talk about property taxes here in California or the cost of housing. It is enormous. But they had it way worse. And for them to make a covenant of faith, we're going to keep the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year, and we're going to pay tithes like we ought to, even though it's difficult. We believe that if we seek first God and his kingdom, he'll give us whatever we need. Every one of you here tonight can look back. And if you search your heart, honestly, you'll have to say, God has never let me down once, never once. Have you ever starved to death? Well, obviously not. Even though we say if we haven't eaten lunch, I'm starving to death. No, you're not. You just didn't have your hot dog for lunch. You'll get over it. We're blessed abundantly in this country. God has been faithful. David said, I was young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor God's people begging bread. I love that. And so here's their step of faith. We're going to seek first the kingdom and these things are going to be added unto us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So look at your finances, whether you have very few or you have a lot. And think of them as an investment in getting the kingdom of God spread and find ministries that are spreading the kingdom of God and are successfully glorifying the Lord and sow into them and reap the spiritual benefits. Somebody once said, money is a lot like manure. If you stack it up, it stinks. But if you spread it around, it makes things grow. I like that. Let's spread it around. Let's make things grow. Back in the 1930s, a preacher by the name of George Truett, who lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, was at a very wealthy landowner's house for supper. This man struggled with matters of God and faith. And after supper, the rich landowner took him up to his balcony and pointed to the oil wells, the oil drills out in the horizon. And he said, George, everything you see in that direction belongs to me. I own it. I came to this country without a penny. And now everything you see in that direction is mine. It impressed the preacher. Then he turned him around to the other side of the balcony and he showed him the wheat fields that stretched out on the horizon. And he said, same thing in this direction. Look at all those fields. They're mine. I came to this country without a penny and now everything in that direction I own. Took him to the other side of the balcony. Took him to all four sides of the house and showed him, said the same thing. Finally, the preacher put his hand on the fellow's shoulder and he said, I have one question for you. How much do you own in that direction? Because if you own everything in this direction, but nothing in that direction, you're broke. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his own soul? And so this group, these children of Israel realized God has given us so much. He's blessed us so much. Let's gather together and be unified over scriptural truth with accountability, with our families, even to the point of our finances. It's all his. Great way to be unified. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our outlook is so often determined by our uplook. We too often have our eyes to the ground looking down, looking at what we have or don't have, the problems that are ours, the struggles that we face, how we're going to pay this, how we're going to manage that, when all along we're talking to you, the God of all resources, all wealth, all glory, with whom nothing is impossible. And here we are, your children, and we believe you will never allow the righteous to be forsaken or your people to beg bread. 
Thank you, Lord, for the way you have blessed us. How you have lavishly poured out your blessings on us. And how you have reminded us once again through the simple declaration of the revelation, the Bible, that you own us, that we're your people, that you're our God. And in this place at this time, we make that simple covenant with you. Or we are reminded of the covenant you made with us through the cross. And we think about the suffering of our Savior and that his blood was shed. And we think of what Paul said when he mused on that truth and said, If God did not spare his only son, but freely gave him us up for us all, how shall he not then with him freely give us all things? So once again, Lord, our perspective is adjusted. We know who we're talking to. We know that you can do anything. You know what we face. You know the struggles we are dealing with. We commit it all to you to enjoy your resources and your fellowship. Lord, I pray we would never be tired of the Bible, never tired of its truths, never tired of reading and discovering and applying. In fact, I pray that that one thing would mark our unity to be a unity that is based on scriptural truth. That we would love each other according to the truth. And Lord, I pray that we would never be afraid of accountability. That no one here would live in isolation. We would all find a brother or sister or a group or a small fellowship that we could be ourselves with. Be understood by, be prayed for. We pray for families of this church, Lord, that the bar would be raised of integrity between husbands and wives, parents and children, that men will lead their homes, that wives will love and submit to their husbands. And Father, we pray that we would look at the finances, not as, well, 10% belongs to God and 90% is mine, but 100% is yours. It's all yours because our very lives are yours. And we pray that you would direct us. I thank you for each person, Lord. What a joy it has been to worship with them tonight. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for their presence. In Jesus' name, amen.